when we come into contact with new information, we can either reject it or receive it. Those are basically our two options. We can either reject it or receive that information. To reject new information is to basically to live as if it doesn't exist. Whether that information is true or not, especially if it's true, we kind of really don't want to listen to it and we put it away, pretend like it doesn't exist. To receive new information is not to just to mentally agree and to, to say I believe it or to assent to something, but to actually kind of consume it, to, uh, to move on as if that new information matters and is real and changes us. It, we have a different life because of it, because of coming into contact with this new information. Now, what we see in this story in Acts today are people who come into contact with information about Jesus, about who he is, about what kind of person he is. And some reject that information, some accept it. Some choose to have a new life because of that information. Some choose to go against that information. And in the rejection or the receiving we see our hearts as humans, as people, our hearts are exposed. So as we come to Jesus, whether we reject him or receive him, it, it exposes where we are in our own hearts. Those who reject, we're going to see, uh, resort to mob rule. Those who receive it with open hearts kind of change and, and they move forward in their lives. So let's start first with that, the people who reject Jesus. Who rejects Jesus? So Paul goes to this place called Thessalonica. And he's at the synagogue there, a group of religious Jews. He preaches this three-week sermon series on Jesus in the synagogue. Specifically, he's talking about Jesus being the Messiah and on Jesus' death and his resurrection. A lot of stuff there. We'll talk about that in a second. Now, some were persuaded in this synagogue. Some of the religious people were persuaded. But the really kind of strong religious Jewish people were jealous that people were coming to Christianity, that people were converting to Christianity, that they weren't staying within the kind of normal rules and regulations and status quo of Judaism. So this caused a little bit of a stir. Now, this first section, the people are mostly rejecting Jesus. That's what we're going to see. What does it look like to reject Jesus? That means they reject his message, they reject his messengers, but ultimately they're rejecting Jesus, him himself. So let's start with Paul's message. Uh, so there's two main points of this sermon series that Paul is preaching here on, Th on Thessalonica. First is that Jesus is better. So better than what? What is Jesus better than? Paul would say, yes. Finish your sentence, whatever that thing is. Jesus is better than whatever. The answer is yes. Jesus is better than all of those things. When, whatever you want to finish that sentence with, Jesus is better. Now, it says here that uh, Paul was saying that Jesus is the Messiah, or uh, a way to translate that into maybe our English kind of speech is king. Messiah is another word for king in Greek, and uh, the Greek word is, is Christos, which is where we get Jesus Christ. So Christ isn't Jesus' surname, it's his title. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're basically saying Jesus King, the one who's the king. And Jesus being king, that's an exclusive claim. It's exclusive. He is the king full stop. There is no room for anyone else if Jesus is the king. The throne sits one person, and Paul is saying that person is Jesus. Now, here's like six verses, only six small, tiny verses. The Bible has millions of verses about Jesus being, but here's six verses about Jesus being king that will blow your mind, that will completely blow your mind. Something that Paul will write later on, it comes from uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. 
So in, in those kind of six verses, the first little thing that Paul writes is, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So Jesus is existing before anything because he's God. And then Paul writes, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So in Jesus, everything has been created. There is nothing that hasn't been created through him. The king has started it all. Then Paul continues to write, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together in Jesus, from the atomic uh, reality of, of molecules to our solar system to our very being. Jesus himself right now is holding everything together because he is the king. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. He might have the power. He might be uh, have the all-inclusive reign. The head of the church is Jesus. I mean, if Redeemer had an org chart, which we don't really need to because we're small, if we did have an org chart, at the top of the org organizational chart would be Jesus because he's the king. Because in everything, he has the power. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God the Father is pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. He's pleased. And all things will be brought together, will be made one. Isn't that good news for us right now? One day, all things will be unified. Things on heaven and earth will be one. There won't be a separation. Peace will be made. Unity will come through what the king has done, through making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's just six verses that Paul writes. Six measly verses in the letter to the church at Colossae, the book of Colossians. That's a slight, tiny, little, itsy-bitsy look into what it means when we say Jesus is king. So saying Jesus is king is a completely loaded phrase, loaded with all of this. We, we just had a second to kind of take a little rabbit trail from Colossians to have a look. When we say Jesus is the Messiah, when we even call Jesus Jesus Christ, this is what it means. Jesus is king. And a king like this, who can have anything on him? Who can even think to stand next to that kind of power, to stand next to that kind of authority? Who can even think of that? Nobody can. Now, many are, will try, many have tried, but nobody lives up to this kind of king. And what kind of king is this Jesus? Well, in his complete power and authority over everything, what does he do? Paul says that he suffers. In verse 3 here, it says that uh, the uh, Messiah had to suffer. That's what Paul is explaining. The king has all the power in the world and he uses it to suffer for us. He's not doing it for his own good. He's doing it for our sake. The king loves us so much that he cannot bear to see us go through life without him. So in his power, he made a way. He died so that everything that holds us back from him in ourselves, all of that will die. That's why he died. Everything that keeps us isolated from God's love had to be destroyed. Jesus was destroyed so that we won't be. That's why the Messiah had to suffer. And because he's the king, he has more power than death. And he rose again. He resurrected himself, not just a resuscitation, 
but a resurrection. That's something different. This is a new life, not just an old life continued. This is a new life completely, a new body. This is a new kind of hope, something only the king can do. Only Jesus can do this. Jesus' death and resurrection wasn't just like a cool story, wasn't just an example. It actually really did something. In, in itself, that action actually did something. It was more than an example, more than an opportunity. It actually did something in itself because through it, the king won for himself a people, a people that would be loyal to him, that would, be, that would have their prime allegiance to him and to his kingdom, people who get to experience his love as we call others to do the same. And this is what it means for Paul to preach that Jesus is the king and that he had to suffer and rise from the dead. We could go a lot more into that, but that's not what Luke, who's the author of Acts, that's not what Luke does. He doesn't stay on that for a super long time, at least not in this part of the Acts. In this story, he's concerned with how people are reacting to this message. So what is the reaction? Well, uh, not so great to begin with. Most of the religious people are not excited, to say the least. That's a very mild way to put it. They get some dodgy characters. They form a mob. This is not starting to look good. Anytime a mob forms, generally not good. Start, and they start a riot in the city. Now, let it be known. The gospel, properly understood, is controversial. Disciples here, of, disciples of Jesus here, they're dissidents. They're going to be run out of this city. People who follow Jesus are, are, are rebels. They drag people out of their homes, put them before city officials. They're thirsty for blood. The crowd that they've rallied up, that they've kind of stoked up, the crowd's in turmoil. The city officials are in turmoil. The religious leaders are in turmoil. Everything's in turmoil. We see two main categories of people uh, being described here. The first are power structures. The religious power structures, the political power structures. It started with the religious people, and then re the religious people try and get the political people to do their dirty work for them. This is also how Jesus was murdered, by the way. Uh, saying that Jesus is king is disruptive to those who are in power, and to those who like holding that power over other people. To people who think they have the power, saying that someone else has power, it's an affront. That's offensive. You say that someone else is actually in power, and they're really not. Now, the gospel isn't anti-government, but with those who, who are holding power might be offended by the reality of Jesus actually being in control. Also, the religious power structures, not just political people, religious people, they're jealous that people are, um, that uh, they're not going to get as many bums and seats as they did before, because now people are following Christianity instead of Judaism. They're not, they don't like either. So it's not just the power structures, though. Uh, there's public opinion, the crowd in general. And the crowd's in turmoil. The, bear, the Bible kind of rarely speaks highly of kind of public opinions of the masses. People love to do what they think is best. I mean, just think of people who lived 100 years ago. It was, it was common in public opinion to have some horrible views about other human beings because they might look different or they might come from different places of the world. You might be asking yourself, maybe not much has changed in the past 100 years, but think of 100 years from now. What are, the, what are people going to be looking back at our commonly held beliefs and, and see just as reprehensible as we see their, people who lived in the past from us? Public opinion is always a weak foundation for belief. So if you believe something, like Jesus is king, if you believe that, public opinion is probably going to be against you. And maybe you really feel that. Maybe even now, you're like, even watching this, you might feel even uncomfortable thinking of how many people that you know who disagree with you. 
or may not be happy with the fact that you follow Jesus or are interested in following Jesus. Well, you're in good company, my friend, because that's where Paul was. Paul and his crew here, like the early church, like Christians throughout most of history, like us right now in Charlton and Manchester, we are the minority of you. It doesn't necessarily mean someone's right or wrong. It just means when people disagree with us, we shouldn't be that surprised. Now, Jesus is playing on a level that all these kind of wannabe kings can't even dream of. It's like when, if you ever played sports kind of growing up at all, it, when you thought you were maybe good at a sport, like maybe you were good at like around the neighborhood and you were kind of all right, or maybe you were the best, you know, in like the, the streets around you, and then you play at a higher level, and now you're surrounded by people who are just as better, if not better, just as good, if not better than you. I mean, I used to play a lot of sports growing up, and I was kind of okay at a few of them, but I was quickly out of my league as the kind of levels got progressively higher and then competition got progressively more, more fierce. Jesus as king is the difference between playing football in my back garden and trying to go to Old Trafford to play. I'll be completely out of my league there. I mean, maybe I can play in the back garden all right with my five-year-old son, but every one of us would be out of our depths at Old Trafford. And it's the difference between a real king, and all the wannabe ones. The wannabe ones cannot play at the level that the real king is playing at. They just can't. Now, if you follow this kind of Jesus, if you follow King Jesus, as we see in this story, it means that you are a missionary. That's who you are. That's not first about what you do. It's about who your identity is. Regardless of your job, regardless of how you get a paycheck, you are a missionary. And missionaries can sometimes be troublemakers, or can, can sometimes be seen as troublemakers. A person who protests against the status quo will be seen by that status quo as a troublemaker. That's how it is. The kingdom of God is a disruption against all these other wannabe little kings with all their little wannabe little kingdoms. The kingdom of God is a, is a disruption to all that. And now we've just been talking about outside of us has nothing to, to, um, to, to say about what's going on inside of us. All the little parts of us that want to be kings over all the little parts that we see as our little kingdoms. The kingdom of God is in, and king, led by King Jesus is a disruption to all of that. And when we realize that these little wannabe kings cannot lead us into life, cannot really get us the things that we really want, finding another king that can is really good news. That's really good news. Because then we find our hopes are actually in the right place. That's information that we want to know more of. That's information we want others to, to know more about. And it's worth being seen as a troublemaker for that reason. But little kings don't like being told that something or someone else is better. Little kings are going to try and fight back. This is true in the world. Again, it's true in our hearts. And as controversial as it is for those in power to hear all this, for public opinion to respond to this, the biggest controversy comes from right here, from within, in my heart, in your heart. Jesus, by sending his spirit, has rioted in my heart, has overturned the tables in my heart, has burning down my old ways inside of me. And now I get to live a life that follows the king who suffered for me who rose again for me, not for him or his own agenda, for me and for my good. That's something that no other little wannabe king can do. And when Jesus is king, he does not leave room for others. The throne sits one person. There's no room for anyone else. So who are the kings that we serve? 
Anything other than Jesus cannot give you life. They can't even get you what you really want. Like if your job is king, it will always steal more from you than what it actually gives. If your family is king, it will always be more of a burden and a worry than a spring of life. If you serve your own desires and opinions, you will always live a small life and miss out on God's goodness. Always. Now, none of these will suffer for you. Your family and your, your job, your job is not going to suffer for you. It's not going to rise again for you. None of these can do that. Eventually, it all goes away. Career, family, you. you we, we will all go away eventually. But while we're here, you are worth so much. You are worth so much. You deserve a good king. Not some little wannabe king. You deserve the real thing. You deserve God himself. You deserve it. You have that dignity in you. One who's more powerful than our dark hearts, our broken structures of society, our own opinions. All of us have allegiances to kings that don't deserve those allegiances. And so where are yours? How is that working? Jesus has come to free us. And if you don't follow this Jesus yet, this is true. If you do follow this Jesus, this is also true. All of us need to hear this, and all of us need to hear it more often, and more than just you know for 30 minutes on a Sunday. And if you aren't part of Redeemer, and you want to learn more about taking the next step with God, and want to learn more about what it means to live out this kind of new allegiance, live out this new life, or even if you just want to learn more about what a new life could even possibly be like, Go to RedeemerMCR.com slash live. There's a little sign-up button there that will send us an email and we can be in touch. Uh, there, or you can just email us from the website. There's all sorts of ways to actually ask the questions that you might have. Because here's the thing, like none of us can do this alone. None of us can do this alone. And if you are part of Redeemer, let's continue to lean into the relationships that we do have. The, uh, the, our missional communities, our core groups, the friendships that we have, and pray through these things together. Ask others to point these things out in us. It's a difficult question to ask. Where do you see my misguided allegiances? But what an amazing thing to, to be told, to be able to have a mirror and be like, you know what, sometimes I see this. Wouldn't it be great if you could maybe move this way? That's information I want to know. That's a way to love other people well, even though it can be difficult sometimes. However, in all of this rejection that we see here at Thessalonica, there is still new life. Some of the religious people were changed. And a large number, it says, a large number of non-religious people did as well. Gentiles. Including a few prominent women. So even when people are run out of a town, God still works. Even when on the face of it, it looks like Charlton couldn't care less about Christianity if it tried. God is still at work. And later on, we see that actually a church gets planted in Thessalonica because Paul writes a few letters to them. So after all this craziness, all this craziness, Paul is able to flee Thessalonica and he heads to a city called Berea. Now, there's a very different reception uh, in Berea compared to Thessalonica. And let's have a look at verses 10 and following for this next section of what it means to receive Jesus. Uh, the people here are, um, are about receiving Jesus. So the people here heard Paul's message, and, and they heard something better. Paul was talking about something better than they were living with their lives. The message of Jesus is better than any other kind of religious message out there. And because they received this message about Jesus with eagerness, they're described as having noble character. Because they were eager, because there was this anticipation. It was all in how they reacted to the message. Now the message of Jesus, 
which if you've been around the church for a bit, we call the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the king. That's better than any religious message out there. Religious messages bring death. A religious message is this. You do good for God and God will do good for you. It's like you scratch God's back, God will scratch yours. That's really nothing more than manipulation. That's what religion is. Religion is man's attempt to manipulate God. God is on my side because I go to church or I read my Bible or I vote this way or I live this way or I have this kind of way of doing life. Religion is man's attempt to manipulate the gods. The gospel is God freely giving himself to us. Our confidence doesn't rest on how we're doing. That's not where our confidence lies. It's on what God has already done for us. That's a confidence that's outside of ourselves. That confidence rests on God himself. So when we mess up, and we will mess up, we can be okay with that. We don't have to go into our shells like really kind of shameful turtles or something like that because we rely first on what God has done for us. And that doesn't change. If we are relying on ourselves and we mess up, of course we're going to be shamed or we'll be guilty and we won't want to talk about it. And when people point it out, we'll like be really super offended or super scared or whatever because our confidence is rested on this thing that's obviously shaky. But if our confidence rests on Jesus and what he's already done for us, then when people point out, you know, areas in our life that where we can grow in, we don't have to live in shame. We'd be like, oh, you're right. I, I should change because my confidence isn't on my performance. It's on the God who's already performed and done everything for me. That's revolutionary. That's the difference between religion and Christianity. There's a difference between a religious message and the gospel message. But have a look at here at how the Bereans came to their conclusions. Verse 11 says, Now the Berean Jews were more noble character than those in Thessalonica, as we just heard, for they received the message with great eagerness, and here's the part, and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They brought it to the scriptures. Now, God has made us with our own thoughts. He's made us with an emotional life. He's made us with intellect. All those things are good, but none of them are flawless because none of us are perfect. No parts of us are perfect, emotions or whatever. All parts of who we are from emotions to our opinions, are corrupted by sin. There's a theological term called the noetic effect of sin. That basically says that all parts of who we are have been corrupted in some way because we're not perfect, because we're sinful. So that means whatever we think, feel, believe, whatever it might be, needs to be taken to God's Word. And God's Word here is, is, is being studied in community. We'll get to that later on. These are God's words to us in this book. This book is God's words to us. Like, we never have to be like, I wonder what God thinks. Like, he's told us in the Bible. He's told us what he thinks. When we read it, it is God speaking to us. Literally speaking to us. God meant for the Bible to be how he speaks to us. Why would we overlook that? Do any of us get, like, not enough input? Like, you know, I... Do any of us get too much from God? Do we feel like God's speaking to us too often? Of course not. All of us want to know more about what God thinks. And every, every time we rely on our feelings instead of what God has already said about himself, we're overlooking his words. Every time we rely on our thoughts or ideas instead of what God has already said about himself, we're overlooking it. Every time we rely on others' ideas, political or religious or whatever, we're overlooking it. 
Don't take my word for this. Do not take my word. It's not about what Greg says, thankfully. You have a responsibility to know God yourself. You can't merely rely on me. Hopefully, you know, churches can be a part of that. You can't merely just rely on me. There has to be some kind of personal responsibility. You have to read it for yourself. And if you've never done that before, and you're like, I have no, no idea where to start, we can help. Like, let us know. Click the sign-up button. If you've, already, if you've already did the sign-up thing and you get our emails, just reply to one of the emails. Or if you have read the Bible before and you need help, like all of us probably, and you don't have that help, let us know. There's no reason to not get the help in Redeemer. We can help. Look, if people fact-checked Paul, you should all the more fact-check me. Like, fact-check me like crazy. You need to make sure what I'm saying is true, and you need to see how it applies to you in your life. Search the word for yourself, not just to tell me where I get it wrong, though when I do, please do tell me where I get it wrong, because I need that, but to understand more of it for yourself, to encounter God yourself. The relationship we have with Jesus is such a personal one. And if you've never taken the time to listen to a person, how could you say you have a relationship with them? If I go a day and don't speak to Christina, that changes my relationship, especially when we're living in the same house under lockdown. So many of us are, by default, spiritually complacent. We're not really hungry for God. I mean, have you ever been in that kind of position where you're just like, eh, the Bible, uh, I guess I should read it. I mean, I definitely have. I mean, there's times where I have felt that hunger. There's times where I cannot wait to read more and, and learn more from God, and I feel like there's a really like, a strong two-way connection going on. But there are other times, and probably more often I'm in this other time section, to where I'm just kind of blasé a little bit about it. Like, I know I should read it, but I'm not, like, super ex excited or stoked to get into it. In fact, I'm sure, it's most of my spiritual life has been more of that, that latter aspect. But whether I feel hungry or not, whether I feel that hunger or that spiritual desire or not, whether I feel it, the, it doesn't change the fact that I need spiritual sustenance. I, I need food. Otherwise, my soul will wither away and die. Now, of course, it's always going to be easier to follow through when our feelings and, uh, and desires are all on the same page as our aspirations. Of course, it's always going to be easier to be that way. But that's just not always the case, and we shouldn't expect that to always be the case, which is why these things like reading the Bible, prayer, all these kind of basic Christian things, it's why they're called spiritual disciplines, not spiritual whatever other word we could use instead of disciplines. It's like going to the gym. It's not always easy to spend time in the Word. Uh, it's not always easy to spend time in prayer. It's just not. But the longer we work at it, and feels like work a lot of times. The longer we try to go at it, the longer we work with it, it becomes more and more of a habit. And the more that that path gets traveled on over years, over decades, it, the easier it gets over time. But here's the other thing about being hungry. We are going to eat something. And there are many options out there. Only God has the words that we really need for life. Words of life. I don't have those words. Politicians don't have it. Your favorite podcaster, preacher, whatever kind of motivational speaker, they don't have it. The person you love most in your life, like, they don't have it. Eating sleeves of Oreos all day, every day, will change your body. And not for the good, right? I would love to do that. Sit down and watch Netflix and just kind of eat sleeves of Oreos. Like, bring that on. That'd be amazing. But that would be unhealthy. And I would just kind of roll around the house after that. It wouldn't be good for me. The same is true for our souls. What we consume will consume us. What we consume will consume us. What we give our attention to is 
kind of what we will become like. Our hearts need something more than headlines to scroll through, more than good intentions, more than community claps, as good as all of those things can be, and helpful, and some, I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things, but we need something more because we're meant for something more. Our souls need to be filled with God's words about himself, about us and our world. How else are we going to navigate living in this life? There's no other way. The Bereans went to a place higher than their own feelings, higher than their own thoughts, higher than their political system, higher than religious leaders. They went to God himself because they went to the word. And the result in verse 12, no surprise, many of them believed. When God was speaking about themselves, speaking about himself, and people went to go see what he was saying, they grew in belief, as did prominent non-Jewish people. Open Bibles lead to open hearts. And as we've seen in these verses already, like Luke, who's the author of Acts, if you remember, is quite concerned with how people respond to the king and the message. The majority of verses here that we've read are not really about Jesus himself. They're not even really about the gospel message itself. It's all about how people are responding to both of those things. How are people responding to Jesus being king? How are they responding to uh, to the message of him having to suffer and die and rise again? Luke is writing to us, asking us, asking you right now, as we're listening to this, so what's your reaction going to be? How are you going to respond to this Jesus, to Jesus the Christ? What parts of your soul will riot against him? Because no one's going to say, oh, I'm completely all in. I have no problems. Like There will be parts of all of us that will riot against Jesus' kingdom inside of us. Parts of the Bible that we don't like, that we wish weren't there because it will make our lives so much more easier and convenient. I have those parts. You have those parts. All of us do. It doesn't match our opinion sometimes, this Bible. It's not convenient sometimes. God's words are not convenient. It might mean changing our lives. In fact, it will mean changing our lives. Who wants to really change their life? Nobody. We all want to stay the same until something forces us to change, until something better comes along. We should expect to resist Jesus. We should expect that we're not always going to like what the Bible says. That's completely fine. In fact, that's normal. If you're not that, like, disagreeing, then you're probably not reading the Bible right. It means you're, if, if you're disagreeing with the Bible like or chafing against it or there being some kind of offense, that means you're honestly bringing yourself to his words. And that's a good thing. What offends our culture's sensibilities 100 years ago will be different than what offends us now. And that'll be different to what will offend us 100 years from now. This is normal. When we come into contact with God, we will be offended because he's different than us. If not, we've made God in our own image. And we are kind of stifling his identity. So how do we respond to what feels offensive? or what feels inconvenient, or what just doesn't feel good. What parts of us will accept his reign like the Bereans with great eagerness? We won't be completely perfect anytime soon. hate to burst your bubble on that one, but there are now parts of your life that God is working on. There are different specific parts that God's working on. There are specific areas he's pouring himself into. Acts is the story of how God's kingdom advances in this world, as well as in our own lives. And where are the front lines of God's mission to you now? Before God's mission is to anyone else, God's mission is to you. So where is God's mission advancing within you? How is he changing you? How is he asking you to move 
and the next step. Maybe you've never read the Bible before, and you're missing out on what God is saying to you. There's some amazing things in here. Maybe you've never prayed before, and you're missing out on getting to speak to God, the Creator. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while, and this lockdown has revealed parts of your life that you didn't realize needed that much work. Like you thought you bought a decent house, but now like once a wall gets removed, it reveals loads of other problems. Maybe it's a person who's calling you to love more, to be more involved in their lives. And all of this, whatever it might be, wherever God's calling you to, one thing is definitely true. I don't know what, what the thing might be, but I do know that nobody's called to go alone. We're not called to do this thing by ourselves. Though we're all watching this video separately, we live in a culture that doesn't properly honor community, and a pandemic has forced us all into physical isolation, nobody has to go it alone. You can choose that, of course. By default, that's what we'll do. If you don't do anything, you will stay by yourself. But most of us kind of will choose that. But that doesn't help us grow. That's not how the church in Acts lived out their faith. Notice the lack of individualness in our verse here. Even though it's obviously it's important for us to have personal responsibility when it comes to knowing about Jesus, verse 11 says, uh, there's words that we kind of, sometimes we read in scripture and we just kind of overlook. Uh, look at the word they, if you have the NIV. Now the Berean Jews are a noble character in those in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And many of them believed. They examined. They received. They believed. And they were doing this every single day. That's a plural pronoun. They. Learning about Jesus, growing more in him, requires a context. He set things up that way. The context is something that's more than a video. It's rooted in one place with one people, and it goes deep. It's called the local church. That's what it's made to do. Now more than ever, you can visit as many churches as you have browser tabs available to you. But that's not really being connected in a familial kind of way, like a family, the way the early church was, the way the Acts was, and the way that we are called to live now. They spent their relational time and energy and uh, going like into life with each other. And what we learned from this little section and also in other parts of Acts, they were spending their time uh, with those who in their lives who weren't believers yet, as well as people who were in the church. They had these close-knit relationships. They were the, these were the, the people in their church and the people who were in their lives who weren't believers yet. These are the closest people in their lives relationally speaking. Let's use this lockdown as an opportunity to break our cycles of isolation and to grow deeper together. What could that look like for you? May, might mean message somebody, might mean pray for them, let them know that you're praying for them, might be asking them how their day was. You know, you know what? You, do, you don't need a playbook. You don't need me to tell you, here's how you can interact with a person. You just need to do it. You just need to do it. It just needs willing heart to do it. And the easiest way to reject Jesus is to not do this, to not get involved in his church. That's the easiest way to reject Jesus, to be sort of present, but not really, to tick off the box of, yeah, I'm part of a church, but not really being part of a church. Receiving Jesus is growing in his family, the local church. It's the best thing for us, and it's the best thing for other people, because the church is what Jesus died for. Jesus died for the church. When Paul says he suffered, this is what he's talking about. 
It matters a lot to Jesus. He died for the church so that we can be doing this together, how how the Bereans live life together, for our souls to grow. It means more of our hearts to become more like God's heart. God's heart is for the church. If your heart is not for the church, that means your heart is far from God. We need to grow into that. That's why we have the structures that we do at Redeemer. That's why we have missional communities. That's why we have core groups. That's why we have training tracks, because we want to reflect more of God's heart. And Jesus died because without him, all of us are dead. All of us would be dead. Not just individually, though that's true, but us together as a human family. We would have no hope as human beings. But Jesus' death took our death away from us, for all who follow him. And when he rose again, what Jesus did is he gave birth to a new family, the people of God. And this is the story of Acts, the birth of a family, a people who are being rehumanized, like being taught like the baby steps on here is how I really want you to be from God himself. People who've been brought from death to life and are now learning to live that way. And the story of Acts is our story. We get to step into that as we follow him. Just like those in Thessalonica, parts of us reject Jesus. Just like those in Berea, parts of us will receive him. And to the extent that we reject our rejection, to the extent we receive him in our lives, our hearts will be formed by him, who's our king. And this inward change of our hearts being formed more into his overflows and and speaks into and changes and affects all the other areas of our lives. It gives life to where it didn't exist before. It calls us beyond complacency. Sometimes that will cause trouble. When Jesus comes into contact with the status quo, there is trouble. But more than that, there's life, there's peace, there's rest, there's eagerness, and there's belief. Let me pray.